0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the divisions threatening to tear apart the Church of England and the Catholic Church, asking whether the countryside is racist, and examining the downsides of living in a low-traffic neighbourhood. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, journalist Dan Hitchens asks whether Justin Welby and Pope Francis, can keep their flocks in order. He joins me now alongside Telegraph columnist Tim Stanley. Dan, to start with, you say in your piece that after 10 years in charge, these men have failed to unify their respective churches, and indeed have overseen a period of considerable division. Where did it all go wrong?
2: Yeah, that's very much the puzzle the piece is trying to address, because. They began within a few days of each other, both on a wave of press adulation and a lot of excitement, a lot of warm feeling from their respective churches, that here were two men who could unify the divisions, who could remind Christians of what really mattered in their faith and help them to avoid getting caught up in squabbles. And now there are squabbles as far as the eye can see, and really that's the wrong word because the the divisions that have emerged seem to be really fundamental so in the church of england's case in february the general synod the kind of parliament of the c of e voted to introduce blessings for same sex couples which for conservatives looks like basically a concession to same sex marriage obviously a very contentious issue uh, among anglicans and so you have the Evangelical Council, who represent a very important part of the Church of England, saying, we have to resist this. If it goes ahead, we'll declare that it's contrary to the Holy Scriptures, as serious an accusation as one Anglican can make to another. Internationally, you have archbishops from the Global South coming together to say, we can't really recognise the Church of England as our mother church anymore. We can't see Justin Welby as the first among equals because of what we see as a betrayal of Christian doctrine. And then at at the local level, there are lots of remarkable stories of churches like the the one in Oxford, which has said the Bishop of Oxford can't come here to preach or receive communion. So great are the divisions. So when you get to that stage, uh, it's not just disagreement. It's a level of disunity which looks totally unmanageable. Archbishop of Canterbury faces divisions in church is you know a headline that could be written in almost any week but now they they seem basically out of hand yes and and what do you think of
1: pope francis and the current state of the catholic church is is catholicism undergoing a, a similar period of division do you think
2: it has a, a lot of similar features to the anglican crisis it's different because there has not been a moment like this moment with same-sex blessings where large parts of the Catholic Church say we have to resist this and if it goes ahead it contradicts our entire faith but the reason that hasn't happened is because Pope Francis is very good at making ambiguous statements where no one knows quite how to interpret them and whether he's actually in a roundabout way contradicting Catholic teaching or he's actually in a roundabout way affirming Catholic teaching. Um, which has helped to not provoke a huge theological division or a huge crisis, but in some ways means there's a permanent crisis of people arguing about what Pope Francis just said and whether if he said X it was right or wrong. So it's similar issues, it's a similar vehemence of disagreement, and it's a similar disappointment ten years on from... Uh, this moment when nobody had a bad word to say about Pope Francis.
1: Tim, what do you make of Dan's analysis? Do you think it's right to to say that these two churches are, are more divided now than they were ten years ago? Is it, is it or is he being too uh, too declineist?
3: I think his piece is very, very good. His analysis is spot on, and I really liked when Dan picked up on Richard Rex's argument that the church had been through three fundamental debates in its lifetime. It had debated the nature of God. It then debated during the Reformation the nature of church. And now it's debating the nature of man. And that debate reached a pinnacle in the 1960s. And in the 60s, you suddenly get in the church argument over sex, sexuality, reproduction, gender, biology, should we have female priests, etc, etc. Everything about man's nature is up for debate. And the problem is that both Anglican and Roman Catholic churches try to hold their communions together by carving out a middle way. More obviously so in the Anglican case, less obviously so in the Catholic case, because, and you are talking to two Catholics here, so I don't want to offend anyone, but there is a stronger sense with Rome and the Roman Catholic tradition that there is a bedrock of tradition from which you cannot deviate. Whereas in the Anglican church is a little more room for manoeuvre. But in both cases, really and truly, the churches didn't pick a side. they've tried to navigate and they've tried to unify and keep people within their communions rather than pushing them away. So what we've seen in the last decade is that's come to a head. We've reached a point where secular society in Europe and America and the Americas has essentially chosen liberalism, not quite to reject God, I think, but to embrace a certain liberal understanding of Christianity. And many uh, ordinary lay lay people have probably taken that path too. And churches, which have for a long time put off picking a side, have in the last decade realized they can't keep that game going. Now, what both the Anglicans and the Roman Catholics did was they bet on personalities and they bet on reorganization. Again, there's a lot of difference between them, but both what Welby and Francis have been about trying to do is holding people together through the centrifugal force of their personality and also through some tinkering with the bureaucracy. One problem is that, as I have said, that's not sustainable because there are too many logical disagreements that that cannot be held together. But another problem is that both personalities have proven to be more problematic than people perhaps expected. And there is a similarity between the two. Both men in the media have a reputation for humility. Both men among those who actually deal with them Are regarded as a little more prickly and authoritarian. Both men have sung the praises of essentially decentralization. We can all get along by allowing a much greater degree of self-government in the different parts of the church. Both men are accused by their critics among liberals and among conservatives. Both men are accused actually of being authoritarian centralizers. And arguably, just as controversial in the Anglican church as its position on same sex is things like it's, it, what it's doing to the parish church. So as, where, where uh, Welby is accused of favoring one model of evangelicalism over the traditional Anglican model of the parish church. So to cut a long story short, Dan's absolutely right. These are arguments that you can no longer evade. I'm coming around to the unfortunate view that I think they'll resolve in schism not in churches necessarily breaking up or breaking down, but bits of them floating off. And in the case of the Catholic Church, in the next few years, we could see a schism with the German church, possibly with the Belgian.
1: Uh, Dan, there's a, there's, a, there's a point in your piece uh, i like to, to pick up on, which I found very interesting, which is your argument that if you look within Anglican tradition, or, or the Anglican churches right now, I should say, it actually turns out that the the most growth seems to be coming from more conservative quarters and actually appealing to young people sort of countercultural young people which perhaps may come as a surprise to 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 certain listeners but but there there is sort of evidence to back that up I mean, why do you think that is the case is it just a kind of a, as i say a kind of countercultural
2: attraction to 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 these conservative conservative ideas i think that that helps to make it more fun than it might look to be on the non-progressive side of the argument the feeling that uh, one is part of a growing counterculture. I think also there's a sense that people who 50 years ago might have been liberal Catholics, to take that example, um, are now quite happy to be progressive without seeing white and mixed Catholicism into that. And it's like the people who've survived the wave of secularization are more likely to have fairly old school beliefs. And so you do find very strong communities of young believers uh, who are quite impatient with their elders who they see as liberalizing. That's become a very common dynamic, strange as it may seem to older generations. And that's one reason why what happens next is very unpredictable, because there's you know, a great deal of pressure from the media establishment, from politicians and so on in the direction of progressive Christianity But younger people often don't buy into that in the churches. And then you also have the fact that the growing parts of Christianity, whether Catholic or Protestant, tend to be in the Global South, where, again, secular progressivism has less of a hold.
3: If I could just come in there, I, I really agree with that. Leadership is generational. You realize this as you get older. And in the Catholic Church, leadership is essentially a gerontocracy. Leadership is dominated by older people. And as we live longer, thanks to medical science, you get at the top this extraordinary cohort of people who've lived a very long time and who are stuck on the generational values of a generation that's not only the previous generation, but the previous but one or another. So in other words, the Catholic Church right now is still being run by people whose generational experience of religious change is the 60s and 70s. You can only understand Francis through that perspective. It's not that he is a liberal or a progressive by modern 21st century standards. He's a liberal or a progressive by the 60s and 70s, which sets boundaries for what his liberalism and his progressivism is. So, for instance, Francis has no time for trans because that's outside of that particular generational experience. So you have this huge gulf between those people who went through that. and Their whole view is Christianity uh, on the way out. uh, We have to navigate that decline. Uh, we have to keep as many people in as possible. But we've also got to make ourselves more relevant to the baby boomer experience of the 60s and 70s. Whereas younger people entering the church today or in the church today, they're in a church which has already been through the decline. I mean, the decline is speeding up, but they've been through the decline. So if you're under 40 and you're going every Sunday to a Catholic mass, you're not there because of your family experience of you being brainwashed into doing it every week to use an Pleasant term, but being compelled to go by mummy and daddy every week, you're there because you choose to go there. So you are psychologically operating in a very different way to the boomer Catholics, and you're probably much more likely to be conservative. You like Catholicism, you don't think it needs to negotiate with the rest of the world. You do see it as distinctive, and you do want it to be different. So there's this huge tension between the generational experiences. I don't know if there's a parallel to that in Anglicanism. But that's what I see so much more with Catholicism. It's just this huge gulf in attitudes towards what the church's relationship with the world is. And in some way, the 60s and 70s people are right because the laity now really are liberal and progressive on social views. But in many other ways, the younger people are quite right because the decline has happened. And and this, this idea that you need to keep the church relevant to a society which not only is not interested in the church's views on gay sex, but isn't interested in the church's views on the Eucharist or on the resurrection of Christ. That's, that's absurd. Why are you trying to make yourself relevant to that group of people? You've got to have a very different and new conversation with them about the existence of God, because we're now in Britain in a situation in which the majority of people don't believe in God. That's a different game you need to be playing.
1: Thank you, Dan and Tim. Next, in his column this week, Douglas Murray questions whether the English countryside can be considered racist, after the news that this green and pleasant land will be studied by hate crime experts. He joins me now alongside the explorer and broadcaster, Duane Fields. Douglas, why did you want to write about this this week?
4: Well, because uh, there has been in the last few years a sort of very strange push to audit, to use a technical term which isn't remotely applicable. ...audit the English countryside as to whether or not it is racist. This follows, of course, on from uh, some years in which we've seen absolutely everything condemned as racist. Of course, these aren't audits at all. They are commissioned by campaigning groups like the uh, appalling Leverhulme's Trust... who who commission alleged experts, on this occasion people who are called hate crimes experts, as if this is a well-known category like King's Council. And they've commissioned some hate crimes experts to find out if the English countryside is racist. There's been lots of things uh, like this before. Uh, I can predict with 100% certainty that this will be like the scene in Blackadder Goes Forth where the judge uh, puts on the black cap to hang Uh, the accused, before hearing either the evidence or indeed any verdict. So it's it's something, sadly, which a lot of organisations have got in on. It's a shame. The countryside is for everybody. There is nothing keeping anybody out. Uh, The fact that, as the BBC complained a couple of years ago, I think Dorset is 98% white, is not evidence of Dorset's racism or the racism of the hedgerows in Dorset. It's just a fact which you can explain by our history. Uh, go to large parts of other countries and you'll find that they're 98% or more non-white. So it's a very strange and I think very ugly racialization of something in our country which should simply not be politicised or racialized in any way. It should just be there for everyone to enjoy.
1: Dwayne, I'm, I'm sure you would like to respond. Uh, you did a section on Countryfile examining why many people from um, BAME groups see the countryside as a a white environment. Would you like to tell our listeners about some of your findings?
0: Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I did a piece on Countryfile, just like you said, and it was all based around a DEFRA report, which found that many people felt the countryside was not for them. They felt it was a racist place. Now... I got a lot of pushback on social media because my name was included in the the initial piece that went out from Countryfile. They uh, I think it said uh, many in the BAME community find the countryside to be a place that's racist and not for them whereas Dwayne Fields found solace in the countryside and that's I think that sums up my take on the countryside. I find it to be a very comfortable place. I I I understand why people are more reluctant, especially if you come from a, 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 a the BAME community, again, for want of a better word. I understand why you can be reluctant to go into the UK countryside. I myself have experienced things that I think is based on my race in the countryside. And it can be anything as small as someone offering me additional information that... If I'm honest, I think they offered it to me because um, I look like I'm out of place. Now, maybe that's just the look on my face. Maybe it's the colour of my skin. I don't know. I'm a UK mountain leader. and When I go out, people still offer me information that they, I I assume they assume I don't know. And just going back to what you said, Douglas, 98% of parts of Dorset are, are white. I've been to places in the UK where for a week I haven't seen a brown face. I'm not put off or deterred from going there because of that. There are facts, and I think some facts we just have to accept. Parts of Dorset, 98% white, it just is what it is, for whatever reason. If there's something stopping people from going there, then I think that's a discussion we need to have. If people are going there and being told they shouldn't be there, now, I think that's a real problem now.
1: But do you think, do you think that is happening? I mean, what is, what is stopping people?
0: I think it's a combination of things. I think a lot of it is uh, heritage. I think a lot of it and by that what I mean is if you remember or I don't know if any of us on this call are old enough to to remember what the 50s and 60s were like but I know people from the 50s and 60s from the Caribbean community in particular from the African community who've said to me when they got to the UK they stayed in their community they didn't go outside of their postcodes they didn't go outside their route was from home if they were lucky enough to have one to their workplace if they were lucky enough to have a job. Anything outside that posed additional risks. So what you find with those people, they tended not to go out into the countryside because they felt like they exposed themselves to danger. Now, that feeling was probably handed down to their kids and to their kids' kids. And I think there's still some of that lingering. I think when you look at the advertisement out there and all you see are white faces on these adverts that talk about the outdoor gear, you'll find that when we talk about the outdoor spaces... We're not talking in a way that makes people feel like they have some responsibility for it, to it, and a space within it. And I know it sounds like I'm, I'm very tree-huggy at the moment. I work with young people quite a lot. And when you talk to them about how, where they fall within the outdoor space or the outdoor industry. Uh, Duane, I mean if I may say so, you talked about your feelings
4: and the feelings of other people. We can't categorize nor base any policy based on feelings we can base them on facts. So for instance, if there were a case where, I don't know, somebody was told, you're black, you don't belong in this place, that would be something that had happened, and something which we could agree and on condemning. But that isn't what you said, you talk about feeling, the feeling that one might not be wanted somewhere. It's very hard to know what to do with, with feelings. And how you, would, how you would alter them other than just by sort of positive initiatives, not ones that keep reinforcing the idea, actually, that, for instance, as I say, like English Heritage and others, reinforcing this, this idea, this phantom spectre that the countryside is this racist place. You gave us an example of that. The only example you gave was people offering you help in the countryside. I cannot see how anyone can win in this equation. If you were offered help, it could be perceived as racism, uh, might be by you. And if they weren't to offer you help, somebody else might perceive that as racism. Nobody showed me where to go, nobody pointed me the way. But the real thing hanging over this is, there is a, as I say, judge, jury and executioner view against places in Britain which are majority white. And I completely refute this. I think this is an outrageous racialization of our society. And let me demonstrate why by flipping it another way round. Let's take a part of the UK, like, say, Leicester or Bradford, places which in the last census were shown to be minority white. Now, if I were to say, I don't feel very welcome in Leicester. I don't feel welcome in Bradford because most of the people don't look like me. And as a result, I would like that place to change. I would like it to adapt to me. And I would like massive grants from all sorts of organisations given fuel by reporting from the BBC, The Guardian and others claiming that these places are institutionally racist and will be until such a time as they become more ethnically diverse would people appreciate that sort of language that sort of inflammatory approach to uh, relations in our country i would suggest not so so why do we why do we agree to it why do we push it on it's it's a stirring up attitude towards our countryside which as i say should be able to belong to everyone and should not be deemed guilty because of the people who live there.
0: I've never once said or suggested that the British countryside is racist. If nothing else, I've said it saved my life actually. Sure. I've been writing for the past about 13 years now that the reason I still think that I'm here and I'm not in prison or in d- dead or you know something horrible is because the British countryside saved my life. I found comfort, I found peace, I found space to think. I find it to be a very peaceful place. And just going back to what you said, Douglas, um, the example I gave of how it feels when somebody offers you help. And yes, some of it is feeling, but there are facts as well. For example, I remember being in one area and I stopped at a shop and I was the only black person, I think, that I'd seen that entire day. And again, I don't dwell on colour because I think we, we can think our way beyond it. But what the person in the shop, another customer in the shop said to me as he walked in with three other people, he looked at me, he said, oh, what are you doing in here, boy? And I looked at him and I, I joke off situations. So even if it's someone horrible, I'll try and make joke and light of it. And it's got me in trouble before. So I said, probably the same thing you're doing. I'm going to buy one of these lovely cakes. And he said to me, um, he said something and then he followed up by saying, yeah, you should be thankful that we, we civilized you people. And I said, well, if you knew me a little bit better, you'd know that. You probably didn't do a good job then, because I'm far from (laughs) civilised. And I joked it off, laughed. The person behind the counter um, kind of smiled along and paid and, you know, sat down a few minutes later, left. That's the kind of thing that I have experienced. Now, does he or that person make the British countryside racist? No.
4: I've got to just address this question. The example you give, I would agree, could be interpreted as a racist thing to have said. And it's an, it's an unpleasant thing that, that somebody would say such a thing. I, I repeat that I think that there are plenty of places I could go in the UK where I would be asked what I was doing there. And uh, I, I think it's ugly every way which you do it. But the interesting thing, Duane, that you, you, you touch on about this so is this, when you say, and I didn't say that you said that the countryside was racist, I said that people uh, including the Leverhulme Trust and uh, English Heritage and others have been doing these crock reports in recent years to try to prove it. Here's the thing: if you, if, when you say to me, Dwayne, I love the countryside, I get so much peace from it, etc., etc. I don't have any buts from that. I'm pure. I'm purely delighted by it because it's my experience as well. And I think it's the experience of the vast majority of the British people, literally the British dream of the countryside. But here's the thing, it is a particular type of, I have to say it, leftist who will say to people like you, how could you possibly think this about the English countryside, i given that it is predominantly white and has been found by XBS group most recently to be institutionally racist. I wouldn't say that to you. I wouldn't say, how come you can enjoy the countryside? It is only these bogus left-wing bodies who find it surprising that somebody from an ethnic minority
0: might love our wonderful countryside. It's a one-way street. Now, we're lucky enough in this country that we have some of the most beautiful countryside you can, in natural environments, you can find anywhere. and that's agree. Cane Gorms all the way down to Exmouth and Dartmouth down near you. My pushback to that is this. If you are writing that the countryside is racist, I would just ask, what is your experience? I'd say that's an opening for a conversation. I wouldn't say you're wrong because that could be your experience. Equally, I wouldn't encourage anyone to write things like that because what that does is there are all these people in the middle ground who say, well, actually, I like it. And what you're doing is you're turning them off. You're switching the conversation switching off of these people where so many people are open to have a conversation about things like race issues and gender issues and all the other issues in the world. The moment you take a firm standpoint and say, this is racist. I know it's racist. It, it makes them just shut down and say, well, that's the point. I but- agree. I want to have that conversation so I can change people's well, minds. He, but well, I agree, du- Duane, but very quickly, as I say, I, I
4: recite in the piece a number of the organizations and bodies that have in recent years done exactly what I've just described. It was the BBC as well that decided in the wake of George Floyd's killing to talk about investi- the necessity of investigating rural racism in the UK. I mean, which has absolutely nothing to do with the uh, arrest and murder of George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis. It's, it's, as I say, left-wing media, left-wing groups who are intent on taking foreign uh, race issues and importing them into the UK to the extent that they even do it with the UK countryside. And as for the broader point, I give the example in the piece of this stunt to do with the putting up of signs in Derbyshire to encourage more Muslim hikers to, to go to the Peak District by putting up signs for the direction of Mecca. I mean, things like this do not actually give out the impression of, of greater openness. I'd be very surprised if there was a massive upsurge in Muslim hiking. As a result of this, anyone who wants to know the direction of Mecca can, as you know, do the old Boy Scout trick and take a compass with them. But it does exacerbate tensions. It exacerbates the idea that there is something uh, wrong about the English countryside, something inherently bad about it. And I just reiterate this, this, this fundamental and important point. Which is what you have re- reflected on, which is that the countryside should be a place of reflection and beauty for everybody, but the injection of racialized politics in it is being done by specific groups with a specific agenda. It is detrimental to absolutely everybody. It, it irritates and and more the majority populations in the countryside who feel as if they are being made to, made to feel guilty for just being. And it is lying to young people from ethnic minorities that there are parts of the country that are, as it were, dangerous for them. Every young black man in Britain is in more danger in South London than they would ever be in Dorset. And uh, so I would like the de-racialization of the countryside. Uh, it, it's, it's a ridiculous era we're going through. And the era would best be stopped by people uh, uh, you know, like us just agreeing that there should be spaces which don't have this horrible junk inserted into them.
0: Do you think more people are more encouraged into the countryside now? And I know this isn't about me questioning you, but do you think more people are more encouraged or um, yeah, encouraged to go into the countryside because of recent conversations uh, in the media in particular?
4: Well, no, no, I think it, all, we don't actually have any data on it, but the data suggests in, in related issues that the more the media plays up issues like this, the more it actually acts as a magnifying device on a problem that, that is at the, I mean, I mean you know, the most minuscule problem, for instance, can be magnified up into a false bogeyman by, by media attention, by exacerbating the attention on a non-issue you actually create a phantom bogeyman and you put people off and you exacerbate racial difference at the exact moment at which we should be trying to minimise it and get past it. It should be uninteresting to know the race of people walking in the countryside or their religion as it should be to know the hair colour of people walking through the countryside.
0: But the truth is, when I first started venturing out into the... UK countryside and for me it was all. it started off in Epping Forest and it spread out to I don't know the Chilterns then it went further north and and I can honestly say I love every single one of them for different reasons the environment looks different pretty much in every single one of them Um, but I would say this when I first started it was very very rare for me to see somebody that looked like me or somebody from uh, an ethnic minority group walking around out there Um, and now it's growing, and I think it's started to grow over the last two, two and a half years or so. I think it's really, it's really started to take well, off. As I, I, I'm, I'm all, all for that, Duane, but as I
4: say, uh, we, we have to be able to play the experiment both ways around. And, um, you know, if it is the case that there are parts of, the, of, of our country which we celebrate being multiracial, then it should go every way, and we should have uh, more investigations by death for English heritage and others as to why there are relatively few white people in certain uh, urban areas of the UK today?
0: Douglas, you will not get pushback from me. If there is a group of people that feel that they cannot go into a certain place, and I've said this so many times before, then I will stand shoulder to shoulder with that group. They don't have to look like me or come from the same kind of areas of high deprivation that I came from. If there is a group that feels like I'm not allowed to go, I can't go over there because it's not for me. Well, I'm going to ask the question, why is that?
1: Thank you, Douglas and Dwayne. And finally, Isinda Maxtone-Graham writes in this week's magazine about the madness, in her view, of low traffic neighbourhoods. She joins me now alongside Jason Torrance, CEO of UK100, which works closely with local governments and is in favour of the scheme. Isinda, could you start by explaining for listeners who may not be aware just what low traffic neighbourhoods
5: are? Yes, it's, I've just come out of the strangled my own little strangled residential neighbourhood, which is lovely and quiet now. They've they've blocked off all the private roads. I live in a little peaceful enclave, rather like a gated community. And round the edges are now all the drivers who who are now not allowed to turn down any side roads, and they have to still get from A to B. I am against these because I feel that they they disadvantage people who really have to use their cars, such as delivery drivers and um, old, old people and mothers of very young children, and they are coming more and more widespread across Britain. I'm I'm sure there are, you know, I care about the planet, I love cycling myself, I'm young and fit, but not everybody is, And, and I'm worried that these things are just being indiscriminately spread about with a sort of zealotry that really needs to be thought about before we go any further.
1: And uh, there's another thing you mentioned in your piece, which is that you, you believe it's having a negative effect on uh, local businesses as well. Yes, uh, uh, yes, I've tatted, mm, yeah. yes
5: exactly. I've chatted to, to my local businesses who are struggling terribly, lo- losing 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 lots of money where they were making profits, losing customers, because people just feel terrified of coming into these boroughs where they don't know that everyone has different rules. You can't turn right there between 7am and 7pm or you can't ever do it, or you're, the, you're either bollards or the worst ones are when there are cameras, because then, of course you can physically get through and then you make the terrible mistake and get £65 and fine why would you ever go to that borough again have you been fined oh yes yeah, yeah i went out to suffering camden the other day and got got fined on the way back just from the yes, i said in the piece the sat now told me to do it but that's, <laughs> that's of no use whatsoever yes. you get um, yeah no way of appealing against that
1: jason i wonder what did you make of ascender's uh, objection to low traffic neighborhoods and uh, i wonder um as someone who supports them if you if you could explain to our listeners the sort of case for them
6: okay so i think we we need to start really with uh with some facts and the unfortunate um situation that we're we're facing in in terms of the facts are that we have some very significant problems in our towns cities and urban areas in in the uk and most notably we have some significant problems uh, around air pollution. The World Health Organization cites air pollution as a or in fact the most significant public health emergency. We have some significant problems which affects people who live in places, businesses that operate in places and people that try and move through places with congestion and we also have some challenges in terms of Travel choices that people often, in very congested places, uh, have in terms of either fear of their safety or uh, not being able to have proper infrastructure to really enable, uh, if they're fit and healthy, to to walk or cycle, or if they're not, to be able to use public transport. So, what about displacing? I, I what about the, what about displacing the, the facts? Fact? Can can I? Just finished. I yeah. think that the facts really point towards uh, local authorities needing to work with residents to, to tackle these problems. These are solutions. So, yes. You want to- yes, I
5: mean, I thought that, you know, that I've never known worse traffic than in the Wandsworth Bridge Road now since the LTN has started. I mean, it's just non-stop gridlock. People live, thousands and thousands of people live on that road, which is now one of the designated roads you are allowed to drive down. And it's gridlock and disastrous pollution. Well, meanwhile, the, the roads behind it are strangely out of bounds. I mean, it worries me that localism is is is, is a, can, has really has its downsides because because boroughs just close in on themselves and make a, try to make a little perfect environment for their residents, ruining lives for passers through. What is wrong with passers through? What are roads for if not to get from one place to another? I don't understand.
6: Well, I you know I I would agree uh, that there is a, a urgent need for a national plan and for consistency uh, across all such measures as as low traffic neighborhoods or clean air zones or or whatever and I, I think that's that's something that really needs to be urgently taken forward i live in bath in in north somerset that has a clean air zone c and i've certainly noticed the improvement in in air quality in Bath, I think, both in terms of the statistics and the reduced traffic on the road. So I think, you know, there is evidence that, that they work. I think in terms of the evidence as well, in terms of the large study that was recently done that I, I'm sure, Jacinda, you'll be uh, aware of by the University of Westminster, found that, you know, there's there's very little generally Uh, displacement of of traffic on on boundary roads the the evidence from this largest study into LTNs ever ever conducted shows that there's less than one percent increase on mean average uh of vehicles that that um uh, uh, passing through boundary roads and the idea that so next year crazy. next year
5: next year in oxford you'd have to have a permit to go 100 times a year only if you live in oxford to go from one bit of oxford to another bit of oxford if you live in oxfordshire you'll get 25 permits a year how dare they offer you know give you permits to go around your own country it, it just seems a real imposition and a real affront to
1: liberty uh, and jason i wonder what you make of two points that ascender makes in her article and we've mentioned briefly on this podcast so one to do with businesses local businesses which ascender writes about in a piece and is mentioned now And and the second one being inconvenience to particularly the infirm and the elderly who often do drive or need to drive uh, more than they do use public transport.
6: Well, I think in in terms of the uh, inconvenience to elderly, infirm, disabled people, uh, of course, travel choice and travel and transport to essential services shops or wherever they want to go is, of course, Critical, but I think taken in the rounds you know what what I observe from my local area when I go fairly regularly up to London is we have some significant problems already with with motor traffic with cars parked on on pavements the the sheer weight of the number of of motor vehicles on our roads, so I think we already have some significant problems which i would argue low traffic neighborhoods and the supporting measures that needs to be put in place around them should should be a priority we need we need some solutions you know not not just objections to uh, attempts to solve the very significant problems that we have for mobility and access
5: the general polls seem to see that sixty about two thirds are against and one third in favour. In general, in most, yeah, in most, Oxford in most or, lo, yeah, in London, most sort of boroughs have a when they put put the question out. It seems that two thirds are against and one third are in favour. And and from my experience, businesses I've spoken to, they're suffering terribly from it.
1: Thank you, Iscinder and Jason. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of the Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I do hope you'll join me again next week.